Hello, dear listener, it's Daniel. Now, before we get to this episode, just want to remind you, me and Core just launched a Patreon. For $7 a month, you can get exclusive content. Now, how do you sign up for said exclusive content? Well, we made it easy. There's a link down in the show notes or go to patreon.com slash litdpod. We'll see you soon. Now, let's get to today's episode. was a sound effect in my ear and the sound effect would start in my dream and I would somewhat be lucid at that point and I would say oh no oh no they're coming they're coming and I would know from that sound at that point I didn't ever feel like something was on me or choking me but that I all of a sudden felt like it was dimensionally different it, it was heavy it was like pushing through cement but everything was clear it, it was like it was like oil For, for Christians, pastors out there, counselors, everyone that comes into your office with this experience, don't relegate them to the shameful waters of what have you done. Maybe, maybe they are delving into something occult, but a lot of them are innocent. A lot of them are not evil people out there dabbling with things and looking for trouble and hanging out in graveyards and summoning things. And these things are diabolical and they're clever and they know how to trick an invitation out of you. I never had a nice entity show up. No one was ever wooing me or seducing me. They were all just mean. They were just mean. Think of all the vulnerable kids out there who don't have parents or don't have Christian parents or don't live in stable homes or who are lonely or who are being sexually abused. And then all of a sudden, they're getting some sort of an entity appearing to them at night who's beautiful and kind and grooming them. Welcome, truth seekers, light bearers, and lost to the Light in the Darkness podcast. We hope that this show can help you in whatever leg of the journey you're on. We're your hosts. I'm Daniel. And I'm Corey. Welcome back, everybody. And welcome to episode 25. It feels like quite a milestone to us. Although, when you include off topics, we hit episode 25 quite a while ago. But, seeing as this is the 25th interview that we have, we thought maybe we'd give you a couple quick life updates. It's been a little while. Life update! That's not going to become a thing. (laughs) Not gonna become a thing. <laughs> That's not gonna become a thing either. <laughs> Life updates. It's been a while. <laughs> Our first episode came out in October of 2022. Here we are sitting prettily in August of 2023. So we're approaching the year mark and we haven't really given a ton of updates of what's going on in Daniel and I's personal lives. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, um, I'm actually on the job hunt. If you want to be in prayer on that, believing the Lord to help me find exactly what is right uh, in his perfect will and his perfect timing, I'd really love to be back in full-time ministry. So just looking for something along those lines. 
headlines, believing for his best. Speaking of jobs, my wife Megan, since we recorded our first episode, has been to four different jobs. She is currently at the best paying of those four jobs, and we are just praying that she settles in and enjoys it. <laughs> That's all I have coming to you from the barn side. What about the steals? Well, we got a couple of things, and I'll go in order from smallest to biggest. Uh, Chippy the fire-breathing chihuahua, which, if you follow the website and have read it about your hosts, you'll know uh, who he is, is doing well. But bigger than that, the Steel household is expecting a new member coming to a household near you. January 2024, we have Baby Steel. Super excited about it. Good job, babe. Super proud of you. Been carrying that wonderful little human being so well. We'll find out the gender this coming Saturday. And once that's news, we'll uh, we'll report back here. Bring you back up to speed. Very excited to meet our future number one fan. <laughs> gotta say. <laughs> that's right. That is a little light bearer coming your way, January 2024. Um, today's episode... We have an amazing guest, and that is Vicki Joy Anderson, author and deliverance minister. Now, her book, well, in my opinion, her biggest book, and we've talked about it here and on the episode, they only come out at night. Totally breaks down sleep paralysis, which we reference all the time on this show. So, who better than to bring on somebody who could legitimately call themselves a pro on the topic? There is a slight warning, guys. We do touch on the topics of succubus and incubus. Now, if those two words do not ring a bell, a really simple way to break them down, they're sex demons. So be warned. And just as a secondary, you know, warning, this episode will get a little creepy because sleep paralysis in and of itself is a little creepy. So without further ado, let's get to it. We tend to take things back to the very beginning, because that's right. a very fine place to start. And <laughs> hey, we got to laugh. <laughs> Finally. Don't, don't worry me. <laughs> oh, good. We should have interviewed you sooner. We thought that was from Mary Poppins forever. Then we found out it was Ooh, the sound of music. Sound of music. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Believe me, I don't, know, I don't know my show tunes, but I, I do know that one. That's so. awesome. <laughs> but would you please tell us kind of the atmosphere of your home? Growing up spiritually as a kid, you know, uh, did you guys go to church, family save? Did people operate in the gifts of the spirit? Were there paranormal things going on at home? Just paint that picture for us and the listeners. Yeah, all of the above. So, um, kind of from the outward looking in, you would probably kind of think it was sort of leave it to beaver like, you know, my mom and dad uh, met when they were 17 were engaged by 18, married at 19. They were married 47 years before mom died of cancer in 2013. And it was the classic. Both met and mom was working at like, you know, one of those 1950s outdoor like roller skater kind of like diners and dad would pull up in his 57 Chevy or whatever it was, right? Like just total classic, you know, leave it to beaver kind of stuff. They were church going. Dad was raised in a church going Christian home. Mom really wasn't, but she had an auntie that led her to Christ when she was eight years old. So she was, she was a Christian as well. So, I mean, everything from the outside looking in was, 
normal. And there, there was not a lot of chaos in our home. There was not, I mean, everybody's got dysfunction, I guess, to a degree because we're sinful, but there wasn't, there wasn't anything volatile in our home. You know, mom and dad got along and we all liked each other and there wasn't any addictions or alcoholism or abuse or like, it was pretty perfect, you know, from, from that standpoint. Uh, and I'm not sure. I think my dad was raised in a covenant church and my mom was raised in an E-free church, an evangelical free church. And my upbringing up until things started becoming non-denominational, we would always pretty much go to like what would be kind of traditional Baptist churches, not the completely over the top ones where, you know, where, you know, you couldn't dance and play cards and wear lipstick and all that stuff. But, you know, it was that doctrine, you know, kind of PGC kind of stuff. And so that was my upbringing. And we never were a part of any sort of charismatic or Pentecostal church per se, but we were also not of a cessationalist background either. Like we believed that all the, the gifts were still in operation. And so uh, it, it maybe wasn't practiced in the home, but it wasn't debunked or reproved either. You know, it was, we, we understood that that was biblical. So I think that the, the hardships that were in the home, you know, when you've got teenagers getting married, there's always a learning curve because you've got kids trying to figure out adulthood early on. And so they started having kids at 21 years old. I think I, they were 26 by the time I came around. By the time I got on the scene, my mom had already lost a baby and had several miscarriages. So I think that they lost a total of like four. And my brother and I were the two that survived. So my mom was a very silent, stoic Swedish type. She she did not wear her emotions on her sleeve. So I think that she probably silently suffered far more than I ever anticipated what was going on. She was really good at kind of keeping all that stuff under wraps. But she lost four kids. And then uh, when I was born, my dad was actually unemployed at the time that I was born. And my dad is I always tell people my dad is a genius. He's the smartest guy I've ever met. You guys would love him if you met him. And um, he dropped out of high school. He just couldn't stand the system. He was bored with the whole thing. He he sat there even as a child and as a teenager, just trying to figure out kind of the stupidity of it all. Like he just couldn't, even as a little kid, he just, he was woke before anybody was woke. This guy had a... He was born with a red pill in his mouth. Like from the, the day I was born, he was talking about UFOs and Roswell. And like, he always had had that. We would like him. <laughs> oh man, he, he was awesome. So when I was born, my dad was unemployed and he had dropped out of high school in 11th grade and he got his GED in the Air Force. And so when he retired from the Air Force a year or two later, I was born and he didn't have a job. and. When I was born, it became abundantly clear from the get-go that I was going to cost hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of surgeries. Because from the get-go, I was born with a birth defect. And uh, the doctor threw all sorts of things at me. She's blind. She's mentally retarded. She's brain damaged. She won't live past the age of two. She's nonverbal. On and on and on. And to this day, I don't know if they really knew any of that or if they were just throwing it all out there to cover their tracks or... If they had evidence of any of that stuff, I don't know. But I started having surgery at 10 days old. And this really does play into 
sleep paralysis and why I wrote the book and why I am who I am today. Because when you start going through trauma 10 days into your life on planet Earth, and it continues nonstop for, for the next 18 years with surgeries, doctors, needles, shots, stitches, bullying, teasing, you know, the first 18 years of my life was an intense crucible of figuring out real quick that the world wasn't leave it to beaver, even though it, it had that appearance in my home. I, I was safe in my home. I had a I had a structured, disciplined, safe home. But everywhere else was unsafe because everywhere else was the questions, what happened to your face, what's wrong with her, strangers asking you deeply personal questions. You know, there were no HIPAA laws back then. So you had to just sit there stuttering in the grocery store telling everybody all your business, right? And I became sort of an intensely private person because of that, because it's like, you know, I, I finally kind of got my big girl panties when I got older. said, you know what? It's none of your business. <laughs> you have not earned the right to hear all of that. And so I kind of had a chip on my shoulder by the time I was a teenager, having gone through all that. But it really made me a prime target for these attacks, because this is how clever and diabolical and just sinister these entities are. They pick on the weak. There's no way they're going to pick a fight with someone who can fight back. And so they find vulnerable people who can't defend themselves, elderly people with dementia, nonverbal kids in group homes, you know, who don't live with their parents, um, kids who are too young to explain the phenomenon that's going on. So they just say, mommy, I had a bad dream. And they're like, it was just a dream, bye, you know, and so they can't get help. And so really the safest place on earth for me for the first 18 years of my life would have been in my own bed at night asleep, right? Nobody can get to me. No one can harm me. No one can ask probing questions. No doctors can stick IVs in my fingers and, you know, put me under the knife. None of my classmates are there to make fun of me. And I mean, praise God, I'm a Gen Xer and there was no such thing as social media when I was a kid because I, I never would have escaped the bullying. But the one time where I could have taken a breath and gotten a little bit of rest and had some time to just breathe from the constant influx of, of attack, they got me there too. And from about three years old, I started having these sleep paralysis attacks and they came on a, a near nightly basis. They would come every night for like five, six days or for a week and then it would kind of go away and it would come back. And, and this went on for 23 years. And it went away for a little bit. And then I got myself into another bit of a, a crisis situation in life. I was living far away from home in my 30s. And I had an extremely stressful corporate job. My mom was dying of cancer. And I was vulnerable again. And so it came back full force. But you know what? Praise God it did. Because what the enemy intends for evil, God turns for good. If it hadn't come back, it would have just been a part of my history that I probably never would have thought of it ever again. But because it came back full force in my 30s, that's when I decided enough is enough. I am going to figure out what this is. I had never even heard the phrase sleep paralysis at that point in my life. I'd never heard anyone else talking about it. I didn't know anyone else went through it. But I started praying and fasting and saying, like, I'm going to get to the bottom of this. And that started a 10-year journey of praying, fasting, and researching that uh, culminated in, in the book. Wow. So 
This is normally the point where we ask, what was your first supernatural or paranormal experience? But Mm -hmm. we, you've kind of already unpacked that for us, but your experiences with sleep paralysis, do you remember the early times or the first times or like, what did you see apparitions? Like, do you mind sharing what your experiences were? Yeah, no, not at all. So I have a hunch that this was happening to me very early on, but I don't have memories of it. So when I, there was a brief time in my history when I was about two years old, when we lived in Fairfax, Virginia. And I remember one night telling my mom that I was afraid of the dark or something to that effect. And the reason I remember it is because the story is kind of comical. She said, you don't have to be afraid. The angels are watching over you. Well, I'm two years old. This is the first time I've heard this word. And so I said, what's an angel? And, you know, because she's talking to a two-year-old, she left out some key pieces of information. So she dumbed it down and she said, well, they're big, they're bright, and they're everywhere. But she didn't tell me that they were invisible or, you know, and so she left and I, you know, was going to, you know, I needed evidence that these things were watching over me before I went to bed. And so I didn't see anything big and bright and everywhere in my bedroom. So I, I climbed up on my bed and I looked out the window and outside of my, of my house, all the way up and down the street were these massive street lights. And they were kind of the war of the worlds looking ones that would kind of like, like loom over and had kind of like the alien beam underneath it. Right. And so I thought, well, they're big, they're bright and they're everywhere and they're posted all the way up and down my street. They're, they're guarding my house. So I'm okay. So I was pacified and, and went to bed. So I do wonder now in adulthood i wonder what was behind that fear i I wonder what i was trying as a two-year-old to communicate to my mom at that time so fast forward a few years to four years old we're now living in willow grove pennsylvania and i remember one night telling my mom that i was afraid of all the shadows in my room and again because that's pretty vague uh my mom was like well that's just the moonlight uh because i had a window where and I didn't have shades or curtains or blinds or anything. And so the moon would come in full force and through my window. And so she said, it's just the trees, you know, the shadow. And so she played this little game with me and she would, she had me like, you know, close my eyes and then she would put something on the wall and it would show up like a shadow puppet. And then I would have to guess what it was based on the shape of the shadow. And so she had put like one of my stuffed animals up to the wall. And then she put up like one of my little black, Mary Jane shoes. I'm like, oh, it's my shoe. And so I went to bed pacified that night, like, oh, it's just the moon, because I had a logical, scientific explanation for it, right? But the first incident that I remember, and it's crazy, it took me, it took me many years to kind of piece this together that my very first uh, sleep paralysis experience that I have a memory of was actually also an out of body experience. And I have very few of those. But in this one, I was in my my bedroom in Willow Grove and it was the 70s so I had the olive green shag carpet right (laughs) and (laughs) and in the dream I don't remember being held down or anything like that but I remember waking up and with me it was never an entity on my chest or pressure on my chest or feeling like I couldn't breathe or feeling like I was choked it was never that with me it was a sound effect in my ear and the sound effect would start in my dream and I would somewhat be lucid at that point. And I would say, oh, no, oh, no, they're coming, they're coming. And I would know from that sound. 
And it took me decades to figure out that that sound was actually vibrational. It, it's, it's, it's the vibrational sound that astral projectors will tell you about as they're separating from your body into the astral. And thank God I didn't know that until my 30s or it would have scared the mess out of me. But, but I would always hear that vibrational sound. And at that point, I, I didn't ever feel like something was on me or choking me, but that I all of a sudden felt like it was dimensionally different. It, it was heavy. It was like pushing through cement, but everything was clear. It, it was like, it was like oil, you know, you couldn't move. And so I, I leapt out of bed and I ran across that shag carpet to my door and my door slammed and I didn't hear an audible voice, but the voices in my head said, they can't hear you. No one can hear you. They wouldn't save you if they could hear you. And because I went to Sunday school, I had a little bit of a, of a biblical vocabulary at four. And it was, we are dragging you to hell. And I knew what that was as, as a four-year-old. I probably didn't really understand fully what that meant. And that that was the first one that I remember. And what's really, I think, again, I guess, diabolical about the way these entities work is looking back on it, I think that for a four and five-year-old, the way I articulated these experiences to my mom was pretty sophisticated. I didn't just say, mommy, I had a bad dream. I, I literally said, mom, I had this I had one of those dreams last night. I knew it was different. I said one of the, I would always say I had another one of those dreams last night. And I would say, I never know if I'm awake or asleep because when I open my eyes, I see my room. I see my teddy bear. I'm wearing the same pajama. I'm always wearing the pajamas that I wore to bed. And, and so then I would explain it to her, but it was, it was always just bad dreams. And what we didn't know back then, because people didn't talk about this kind of stuff ad nauseum like we do now. Uh, when you were a kid in the 1970s, the whole world didn't revolve around you and your mental health. Okay. So if you had a couple nightmares, no one, even my doctors, like no one ever associated this with maybe she has some anxiety. Maybe there's some trauma like that has to be dealt with. Maybe this is some PTSD from all these surgeries. There was never any explanation other than it's a dream. Now, as I got older, like in junior high, and I began to articulate things in a more adult-like fashion, my parents very much believed that it was something demonic or something spiritual. But again, it was just this understanding that the way that the demons are tormenting me are by giving me these really bad dreams. And it really wasn't until my mid-30s and in speaking with the late, great Russ Dizdar, who was the first person I ever heard say, when you have sleep paralysis and there's an entity in your room, it's a real entity and it's really in your room. And that scared the mess out of me. It's one of those like hindsight is twenty twenty. Like, I'm glad I didn't know that at the time. But what it made me think of is that verse in Amazing Grace through through many dangers, toils and snares I have already come thinking here I was, three, four, five, six, seven, eight years old, this dumb, ignorant kid. How in the world can I do spiritual warfare if I don't even understand that this is what's going on, you know? But that was kind of the cool thing about it. 
And this is kind of the way I get my silver lining out of all of it because it was tormenting and it was difficult and it did add complications to my life because some of this stuff does follow you then into the physical, you know, it, 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 it's carried with you and it, it affects, it affected my personality as I got into high school. I had a very, very dark personality and I always, uh, I always joke that, uh, I should have gotten credit for inventing like goth and emo because that, that didn't come around until way after I was growing up. But I'm like, hey, man, I had that in the bag when I was in high school. <laughs> oh, man. But, you know, I wrote really dark poetry and I watched a bunch of horror movies and I listened to like death metal. I didn't listen to this like silly girl chick metal like Motley Crue and stuff like I was into like the the hardcore stuff. And it, I I had just a familiarity and a an attraction to things that were just dark but i was a christian i was going to church i was memorizing my scriptures i authentically loved jesus there was literally a war for my soul going on like who will will the real vicky stand up like who is going to be the vicky that that emerges from from this in the end and for the for a long time the the darkness was kind of winning uh because the the darkness seems strong it, it, it you it, you feel powerful and you know sometimes the christian stuff because of the way the world views things through their lenses sometimes the christian stuff looks really weak oh turn the other cheek and you know just let yourself get bullied and like no i wanted to put my armor on i wanted to fight back and i wanted to be ugly you know and so i embraced the ugly i thought hey as long as everyone's going to think i'm ugly i'm going to embrace that and i made that my identity and that really started to rot me from the inside out and praise the Lord. I, I never acted on it. It was always just my armor. It was my facade. You know, I had all the metal t-shirts and, and, and all of that. But I think because I was so antisocial at that point, uh, I had no desire to interact with my peers all the way through high school. So I never partied. I never did any drugs or alcohol. I never dated. I didn't want anything to do with anyone. I was so fed up with all the teasing and stuff. There's no way I was going to be friends with any of those people because I knew what they were really like. You know, I was so paranoid at that point. So I was very isolated. And we know that the enemy loves to put us in isolation. That makes us dark as well. So uh, it, it was um, kind of this continual tug of war between these two cosmic bridegrooms, you know, who who is ultimately going to win in this love triangle, basically. And uh, it really wasn't until my mom passed away in 2013, and I hit an all-time spiritual dark night of the soul. And the darkness came in very, very strong. And that's when I decided to put on the armor and fight. and it, the enemy, anyone who's been through anything like this, the enemy does not easily give up territory, as you know. And so it was about a five year battle with spiritual depression and loads of anxiety and, and all sorts of, of oppression and spiritual warfare and more sleep paralysis and paranormal stuff. But, uh, we, we waged through it and came out on top. And I'm happy to say I, I shed all of the, the desire to embrace the darkness or think that that was cool or, or to find my identity in any of that and decided, uh, I am going to live from this point forward, sold out 100% for 
Jesus Christ. Uh, those things are not my friends. Amen. Going back, Vicki, um, you were saying before that your parents, when you were in junior high, finally started to think maybe this is something demonic. And I'm just kind of got a poke from the Holy Spirit, like to talk about that. Like, what was it that made them start to think, okay, there's something going on here? You know, it wasn't just a bad dream to where they started buying into something dark is happening. That is a really, really good question. And it's funny because. You know, obviously now my dad and I have had so many talks about this since the book came out and he read the book and he was like, this happened to you? I'm like, yeah, where were you at? <laughs> you know, and <laughs> he has no memory that I ever talked about this at all. Wow. And, and maybe I didn't. My, my dad, he was a workaholic. He, he traveled for a living. He was gone a lot. I was really close to my mom. Maybe I didn't. I know I shared it with my mom. So it's surprising to me that my mom wasn't sharing it with my dad, but. Um, my mom, again, she was a very linear, highly intelligent, very stoic Scandinavian type personality. She was not carried by her emotions at all. And when I would come to her and tell her about my dreams and not just the sleep paralysis ones, because what, what a lot of people don't always bring into focus is that Christians, especially who are having tons and tons and tons of sleep paralysis. They're having tons and tons of spiritual dreams on the other end of things as well, right? And so you basically never get a good night's sleep. And, you know, to this day, I don't have sleep paralysis anymore, but I will often wake up just exhausted. And sometimes I'll wear my Fitbit to bed and it'll say like, you slept 11 hours and you got a sleep score of 50. And, <laughs> you know, it's like terrible, right? And so... um, I would try to tell my mom about these dreams because I would feel that some of them had all this meaning and some of them were very spiritual. And I didn't have the word astral back then because I don't think I realized until sort of recently that some of these dreams were actually probably in the astral against, you know, I wasn't seeking to go there, but I would explain some of these dreams to my mom and she kind of had two different responses. Sometimes she would just roll her eyes and go like, ah, I just, I, yeah. she just thought this whole thing about trying to find meaning in your dreams was sort of nonsense. And so sometimes she just didn't have any patience for it at all. And then sometimes I would get up and I'd be at the kitchen table with my brother and my mom because the three of us would be together and we were getting ready for school. And so I would regale my, my mom and, and my brother with like what I dreamt the night before and they wouldn't believe me. They're like, no, you, you're making this up because my mom would say, there's no way that your dream could be that cohesive or that detailed because dreams are just these like little flashes and things you forget and they don't make sense and they don't play in it. And mine would be all these intricate characters. And I could, and when he had a, he had a mustache and red glasses that like, and I would have all this detail and she's like, they, they would mock me almost. They, they would think that I was just making it up. Like I was going through one of these storytelling phases, you know, where I was a bored kid that needed attention. Uh, but I never made up a dream. I mean, these things were intricate. And so I'm not really sure at what point they were convinced that it was something demonic. I, I mean, I think that I was explaining to them, you know, shadow people and it was more what they were saying because they were always saying things like, we're going to take your soul. You're going to be lost forever. You know, no, you know, that it was all that kind of stuff. But I do remember at a certain age, pretty young, my mom suggesting that I memorize certain 
verses. So when I was really little and it would just be little chunks, I like I remember I had, I think it was Joshua 1, 8 through 9 memorized. So I would wake up and I I always instinctively knew to cry out to Jesus and the incident would stop, the episode would stop. But as most people who've gone through this know that even once you're fully awake and the incident has stopped, you can still be in a state of disorientation or or terror for an hour until you fall asleep. You can even wake up with it the next day. You can feel for 24 to 48 hours like a heaviness. You're looking behind your back. You're afraid to go to bed the next night. And so I think that um, I I would wake up and I would cry out to Jesus and the, the episode would stop, but I would then be laying in bed terrified. And I think what I was usually scared of is now that I'm awake, um, I remember my cousin was in the the army. He was an 82nd Airborne paratrooper and a ranger. And he he went to Panama and um and uh the uh, Desert Storm, the first Desert Storm. And he told a story about when he got back from one one of those that he was in bed at night and he he woke up in a sleep paralysis state and he opened his eyes and he saw the demon on the ceiling staring down at him and it terrified him. And so when I realized that at any time these entities could up the ante and show themselves, because other than a couple hat men, I would never see anything. I would just feel the presence and I'd feel the terror. So after that, every time I had sleep paralysis, I was scared to move or open my eyes because I was so scared that if I opened my eyes, I might see something. And so I had scriptures memorized to kind of calm me down and and allow me to go back to sleep. So when I was really little, it was, have I not commanded you be strong and courageous? Do not be terrified. Do not be discouraged. The Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And then as I got older, I had um, I had all of Psalm 27 memorized and so the lord is my light my salvation whom shall i fear the lord is stronghold of my life who will i be afraid when enemies surround me and if you know i i would just and you would literally just crank through that thing like you were doing your abcs when you were a kid right and it really wasn't until i got much older probably in my 40s that psalm 91 became crystal crystal clear to me and what what that terror by night is and and who that midday demon is that comes at noon and there's a lot of actual uh, real, um, real information in there. I mean, if you if you go into the dictionary of deities and demons, the Pachad demon and the Naday demon are actual entities, and that's the terror by night and the terror that strikes at noonday. And so, uh, I think that Psalm ninety one, you know, we've kind of relegated that to the soldier's prayer and like, hey, you know, anytime you're scared, you know, you pray this prayer, but. Uh, if you really look into that psalm, and I talk about it a little bit in my book, I, I kind of think that verse nine is sort of the linchpin of that verse. It says that he who has made Jehovah their dwelling place, no harm will befall them, no plague will come near their tent. And so this this psalm isn't just for everyone who's scared. All of the promises of Psalm 91 are what the Father in heaven will do to protect people who have made him their dwelling place. And that gets into an entire uh, aspect of these threshold covenants and the whole myth of we've caricaturized this whole vampire lore. We've Hollywoodized it. We've romanticized it. But if you go into the actual lore of where we get this vampiric stuff, all the way back to the, the Lamashtu demons, the Lamia, the Lilith, these these night demons that would come and and 
they wouldn't suck the blood out of you. They'd suck the soul out of you. That's how they would kill you. It wasn't that they were drinking the blood. So I think the blood aspect comes from the, these are female demons. These are succubuses. And they were also goddesses of uh, matrimony, sex, menstruation, childbirth. And so I think the whole blood aspect is in there because the life is in the blood. It's, it's the childbirth. It's the menstruation. And so this idea that the vampires come and poke two little holes in your neck and suck some blood is really a, a, a cleaned up little fictionalized version of what these blood drinking cults and these uh, succubus demons were really all about but they were threshold demons and uh, just like in our vampire movies where a vampire can't come in unless you've invited it in first you know this this whole thing of invitation that is a biblical concept it's a law of the spirit realm that they cannot come over your threshold until you've given them some sort of invitation or some sort of invitation that's been given on your behalf by by an authority and um we even see it with with Jesus, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and answers the door and lets me in, then I'll come in. And so it's not um, a law of vampires. It's actually the law of the terrestrial and the physical realm. That veil can't be passed back and forth without our, our permission. And so um, in my case, I think that that permission, because they play dirty, you know, they play dirty. The permission was that I had so much trauma in my life at that time, which was conjuring up all sorts of fear, the fear of going to school, the fear of being bullied, the fear of no one's going to let me sit by on the bus tomorrow. Like I had all this anxiety and all this fear. And then as I got older, there was, there was anger and there was bitterness and there was jealousy because like my friends were growing up and living their normal lives and hitting all their rites of passage. And I felt like I was being held back because of all this. And so. Uh, I was just like a magnet, like I was just setting off pheromones to these things, right? And so uh, that's why I say they don't play fair, because a lot of Christians think, well, hey, if I don't, if I don't mess with porn, and I don't cheat on my spouse, and I don't play with the Ouija board, these things don't have any permission. Uh, but there are other ways, even just through unconfessed sin or rage, or like, um, I've talked to people where when they prayed through it, the the open door was not being able to forgive their father who they had to caretake for. So they felt like their childhood was ruined because their, their father needed this caretaker. Um, an, another guy I worked with um, traced back his UFO abductions to the, the moment in time when they, they moved into a farm in, in a rural area of the United States and couldn't get a well dug. And his dad got a, a water witch on on the land to divine for the water and after that he started having it. so for for christians pastors out there counselors uh don't everyone that comes into your office with this experience don't relegate them to the shameful waters of what have you done maybe maybe they are delving into something occult or maybe they are delving into something sinful but you would not believe the open doors that have been exposed through the people that i've talked to a lot of them are innocent. A lot of them um, are not out evil people out there dabbling with things and looking for trouble and hanging out in graveyards and summoning things. And uh, these things are diabolical and they're clever and they know how to trick an invitation out of you. I mean, that's even in our fairy tales. There's so many fairy tales about 
tricking the little children to open the door and, you know, tricking the little children to, to jump in the oven. And that's how they, that's how they operate. Wow. This is, uh, this whole conversation is taking me back to this last weekend. I was at the beach and I'm sitting in the sun and I'm sitting in, I'm sitting in the beach, like in my chairs in the water. My feet are in the ocean. It's super sunny. And I'm reading this book about succubus and about incubus <laughs> and about threshold demons. And, You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I have to say, I just finished this this last weekend. Your book. Uh, we're not a video podcast. The listeners can't see that I'm holding your book in my hand. <laughs> but, um, you know, I really appreciate this book because a lot of what, you know, I'm not going to make you plug your own book on this podcast. I'm going to do it for you. Um, <laughs> this book is so well written and all the content that you're getting into right now with Incubus and Succubus and all these other things that she's just briefly mentioning that our listeners are probably like, what is she talking about? It's all in your book. And I have mm -hmm. to say that it is so well written. You have over 180 cited sources in this book and you, it's very clear that you took your time in preparing this and I love how punchy the writing is like it's just you don't hold back and you just brazenly say biblical truth and um, anyway I just had to had to wait to pull that out until we were a little bit into the interview to let you know I have read your book and I very much appreciate it and our listeners, if you have suffered sleep paralysis, which actually when this episode airs, the previous episode will have been full of sleep paralysis stories. This has been a very common theme on our podcast. We have had a lot of people just have testimony after testimony after testimony of sleep paralysis. So listener, if you have had that, the book is They Only Come Out at Night by Vicki Joy Anderson, and it is worth a buy. You can get it at lamarzuli.net. You got it. You got it. Thank you. Thank you for that. Yeah. You know, one of the things that I really wanted to do, and because I think this is why we're in the state of ignorance about this topic that we're in, is all of the parties that have a piece of the puzzle don't want to come and sit down at the same table. And everyone has their own one dimensional, somewhat compartmentalized idea of, of what's behind this. And the answer is it's a little bit, it's a little bit of everything. You're all sort of right. You all have pieces. And so, um, for, for the, for the Christians that wanted to, this is a hundred percent demonic. Well, in my case, it wasn't because I, I had trauma and things going on that were making me susceptible to that. And there's even physiological aspects to this. There are times during the night and especially during REM cycles where our body was designed by God to go into states of, of paralysis so that we're not getting up and acting out our dreams and potentially falling down staircases or walking in traffic. You know, it's a protective measure. And so in some cases, you know, the, these entities are capitalizing on, on timing, right? They're, Hey, they can't move. This is going to be scarier, you know? Right. And so, um, I, I just think that I wanted to put a, a, a treatise out there where I acknowledged science has something to say about this. So does medicine. So does philosophy. So do the New Agers. So so does the Bible. Now, I'm not putting them all on equal par with each other. I think the Bible is the ultimate source of truth and the ultimate source of victory and deliverance. But that doesn't mean that there aren't pieces of the puzzle out there that we can't glean to understand what is going on. And I think that we need to hear, hear everybody out. And 
after we've heard everybody out, we can throw stuff out like, well, I don't think that's true or that's a lie or that's disinformation. Absolutely. But um, I, I really wanted it to be fair. I didn't want it to just be this kind of cliche. Everything in the world is a demon. Everything can be solved if you confess every, you know, chapstick you stole as a kid and every lie you ever told and, you know, every ponytail you pulled in junior high. And, you know, I'm not making light of it. What I'm saying is uh, I know people who have confessed every sin. They've prayed every prayer online against Masonic ancestry and curses. They've, they've gone through their homes. They've thrown out every object that could have been cursed or charged or, or is of questionable origin. Um, people who have made war with the flesh and have gotten rid of every album they ever purchased. And, uh, I have dealt with many people who have done all of the things that the church tells them to do, and they cannot shake this. And I don't want anyone who has this to be discouraged when they hear that saying like, oh, man, I'll never get rid of this. What I'm saying is that when the enemy comes in and he spends 20, 30, 40, 50 years of your life hiding, you know, landmines all over. Sometimes it takes a long time to find every single one of those landmines because there could be things uh, in your family line. It can be ancestral. It can be uh, it can have to do with military stuff. If you're from a military family, it can it can do with, with tech. Now, with all the tech that is out there, you guys, it's fascinating. Every aspect of the sleep paralysis experience from the shadow people to the paralyzation to Every aspect of it can be recreated in a lab. They can use brain probes, drugs. They can recreate the whole thing. They could put you down on a gurney and probe certain parts of your brain, give you succinicoline, which is a muscle relaxer, and they could do voice-to-skull stuff, and you would 100% believe you're having sleep paralysis. And uh, I don't think that, I personally don't think that they're recreating all of this so that they can go around like the boogeyman and give people sleep paralysis. Uh, I think it's a little more sinister than that. I think what it is is up until this century, anytime you had sleep paralysis, they diagnosed you with schizophrenia. So I don't think that they're trying to mimic sleep paralysis in a lab. I think they're trying to mimic schizophrenia in a lab because they will have control of the people who are schizophrenic. And if they can prove you're schizophrenic, they've got all the cards. So I think there's something a little more sinister to why they're learning how to recreate this stuff in a lab. But yeah. So you were talking earlier about, and I keep going back here for some reason, but when you were a child, you were experiencing these things. And I'd probably say it's not a stretch to say there are plenty of other people who have kids right now. And they, you know, you might be listening right now and go, well, oh, my kid came and told me about a scary dream and described some stuff. Are there any red flags for parents to look for? Are there any like reoccurring things or am I, you know grasping at straws here and there's nothing there no this is a great question and it requires much discernment i wouldn't just go in there with a bulldozer and especially moms because i know moms that have maternal instincts moms can have a lot of anxiety the enemy loves to attack moms by making them fearful that their children are in danger and then what happens is they run in there to correct a situation and sometimes they run in a little too quick a little too eager. And so this requires prayer 
and asking the spirit of God to direct how and when you should handle this. Because what happens a lot, especially in homes where people don't know the Lord, is the parents inadvertently foster this and it gets worse. Uh, and they're, they're not intentionally encouraging it, but, um, I've even seen documentaries where it started out with sleep paralysis and these familiar spirits are then feeding these young children with information about past lives. And then their mom and dad are going to the library and checking it out. And it's true. It really was the, you know, the, the captain of the Titanic really did have that middle name or, and then things check out. So then they almost start using their kid like a, like a science experiment. And what did he say now? And draw this picture and, and you can exacerbate this and make it worse. And in fact, when I was talking earlier about how they like to trick you into the invitations, that's one of the ways they do it. They put out a little feeler. They give the kid the bad dream with a little bit of titillating information. And if you then go out and start researching it and asking questions or, you know, going into the kid's room and saying, the spirit of so-and-so, are you here? You've actually now just given them the invitation. That's how they got the invitation. So be very, very careful. And I would I would say that when your kid is interacting with you, take them seriously. Don't just say, well, it's just a dream. Eat your Cheerios, you know, just say like, well, let's pray right now. And then pray, you know, and like my parents, like maybe tell them a Bible verse uh, that they can quote easily when they're in fear. Tell them to call in the name of Jesus the next time it happens or hey, the next time this thing shows up, say in the name of Jesus, get out. So like equip them. But all of your anxious fears, that's between you and the Lord, you and your spouse. Uh, but some of the things that you can look for, because a kid isn't always going to tell you, I had these dreams last night. Um, but some of the things that you can look for, and several of these things have to be in place, because some of this is just normal kid behavior. But if all of a sudden, out of nowhere, your kid doesn't want to go to bed at night. And I mean, I don't mean the like, he just wants to stay up a little later. I mean, screaming, crying, tantrum, fear, uh, or rebellion is coming out, uh, wanting to sleep in your room every night, night after night after night. Um, and again, these things have to kind of, many of these things have to line up because every kid at one time or another is going to mention an invisible friend or is going to mention not wanting to go to bed. But if all of a sudden there is high anxiety, uh, if you notice they're not sleeping, if they're really cranky in the morning, you can tell they're not getting sleep. Um, if all of a sudden they're rebellious, like, and I'm talking sudden, like a sudden shift in change. Um, some of these changes, like I know that they teach you on ways to, to, um, determine whether or not your child is being like sexually abused is there's signs where all of a sudden they'll have major behavioral changes. And it's the same thing with this. They'll have behavioral changes. And these things can like, these things never told me, don't tell your mom and dad. But what they would tell me is your mom and dad don't care about you. They won't come even if you call for them. And even though in real life, I didn't believe that, there is a sense where you resign yourself to that in the situation. And so you're not necessarily going to tell your parents. And 
um, where this is extremely dangerous, and I don't want to give parents more things to worry about, because believe me, we got enough to worry about out there in this world. But one of the things that has been coming out of my research as, as people talk to me and call me, a lot of the people that have had sleep paralysis since a very, very young age who have had it over the course of years and decades, uh, whether they were raised in a Christian home or they were not, there was a grooming aspect to this that took place during sleep paralysis and also during the waking hours. And a lot of these kids talked about very early sexual awakenings. Now, this might not seem rare now because this stuff is all over TV and our kids get exposed to this stuff all over and in school and everywhere. But the, a lot of the people that I'm talking to are baby boomers and Gen Xers. And so this kind of stuff wasn't on regular TV and primetime and stuff. They would talk about early onset, like sexual awakenings. I had several people tell me that they woke up with their hand in their pants masturbating and they had no idea what that was. They had never done it before. But they woke up having in the middle of the act and discovering that, right? And that became an addiction. And then that addiction played into these incubus, succubus encounters. And it was a secret, you know. And I remember I, I was asking one guy, because he was raised in a Christian home, I said, Did you get the sense when this was happening to you that this was wrong or this was bad or this was dirty or this was sinful? And I loved his answer. It was so enlightening. He said, I never got the sense that what I was doing was wrong or bad, but I knew it was a secret. So he's not going to tell mom or dad that. And so what happens is it lays latent. Uh, the family doesn't know it. The mom and dad doesn't see the signs. They're going through Sunday school and youth group and, and all this stuff. And then all of a sudden the kid comes back from the first semester in college and they're completely addicted to porn they're you know gigolo uh, uh, several of the people i talked to struggled with homosexuality for 20 30 years because of this and it started as a seed in these sleep paralysis experiences and uh you know nowadays we have the public school system doing that for us so we you know the entities you know they've just pawned it off to, to someone else but back in the 50s 60s 70s and 80s which is a lot of the people that are calling me now they were getting the same exact comprehensive sex education that they're peddling in the schools now in these sleep paralysis experiences. So they've just become more overt now. They've, they've come out, out of the dream world and into, into the terrestrial realm. But, um, parents, I don't want to overly alarm you. I don't want to scare you, but we have to expose the deeds of the devil because this stuff goes on and just because your kids are at home safely tucked into their bed, hugging their teddy bear does not mean that these things can't expose them to the stuff that you are trying so hard to keep their pure eyes away from. So that isn't something that you discuss with your kids. You don't start probing them with questions over the, the, the breakfast table. This is something you take to your prayer closet and in prayer, it's part of your spiritual warfare prayers for your kids and for their purity and for their heart and for their their sexuality uh you you have to be aware of the fact that these things do not play fair so gosh how to word this would you say that these people to some degree were being visited by 
what uh, I think I'd call an incubus or a succubus, or it was just more influencing them to do what they were doing, or yes to all. So I think the incubus and the succubuses don't really show up until puberty at the earliest. What they really are before that, and I, I have had people tell me that they remember things happening to them when they were still in a crib, you guys. And so what happens before puberty is it's a grooming situation. And so it's some sort of, you know, the New Agers would call it a spirit guide or, you know, something like that. But this entity is appearing not as a sinister shadow man or an evil person. I look, This is one of the reasons why I don't get too upset that I had shadow people coming and scaring the crap out of me because it, I would rather have been scared to death than lulled into something that would have, you know, ruined my life. And so I never had a nice entity show up. No one was ever wooing me or seducing me. They were all just mean. They were just mean. But what what's happening with a lot of these kids is they're getting entities that appear. Oh, think, think of all the vulnerable kids out there who don't have parents or don't have Christian parents or don't live in stable homes or who are lonely or who are being sexually abused. And then all of a sudden they're getting some sort of an entity appearing to them at night who's beautiful and kind and grooming them. And so uh, in, in that case, I don't think the incubus and the succubus show up until later um, when the, the child is awakened and aware of what that stuff is uh but they are being groomed for it um through dreams and through pleasure centers in their brain and through the uh literal teaching of of masturbation and cosmic molesting i would say so for our listeners we've never touched on incubus or succubus and we have a lot of newbies uh to this whole deliverance spiritual warfare uh, we have a lot of folks that aren't versed in all this so um you 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 touched on the nature of the incubus and the succubus earlier uh with the vampiric line and, and lore and and whatnot but just for our listeners these are these are sex demons essentially yep. sex sex demons rape demons they're called so if you actually go back into antiquity and you go into dictionaries and handbooks and encyclopedias where they would go through the whole um litany of the demons and the the various tiers on the totem pole of who was in charge of who and all this stuff the incubus and the succubus were the lowest of the lowest of the low on the totem pole. They were the scumbags. They 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 were the janitors of the astral realm, right? And I, I think the reason why this is, is if you're going with the classic definition of demon, like you're going back to Dead Sea Scrolls and apocryphal teaching and scribes and uh, rabbinical things, uh, and there's, there's modern writers too. I think Heiser delved into this as well. If, if the demons are solely they're not fallen angels they're they're not they're not one of these entities in the high places of ephesians 6 12 if demons are the disembodied spirits of the nephilim which were the offspring of the watchers with the human mothers that means that these demons are actually they're they're half-breeds they're they're you know to a human being they're demigods um because they're humans with superpowers but to the demons 
they're tainted with this mortal, like ridiculous, gross human DNA. They're, they're scraps, you know, they're the dogs. So we, we use this word in, in modernity for incubus and succubus, which are, are these seductresses. And sometimes they come in a beautiful form at first and then they can, they can change and they turn ugly. Sometimes they're old women. Uh, a, a great uh, pop culture example would be in the movie The Shining, where he goes into the room and starts making out with the chick, and then he he catches her in the vanity, and she's old and decayed. And um, people will talk about that. It, it can also be like the classic vampire who turns into a bat and you know flies out the embrasure of the window, that kind of thing. But um, in antiquity, I they weren't always called incubus and succubus. They they went by these. Uh, they were these Lamashtu demons, and they go by many, many different names, depending on if you, you know, you're looking into the Babylonian or the Sumerian or the Akkadian or where, wherever you're at. Uh, but Lamashtu, Lamia, Lilith is the Hebrew. A lot of people have heard of the Lilith uh, demon and the, the Skyrim, like a lot of the D&D stuff has iterations of this. Even the Victoria's Secret models, like, you know, the Fallen Angel collection where they're all in black lingerie with the huge draping black angel wings that go to the floor. Those aren't angels. Those are actually uh, these Lilith uh, fallen angels. These are the succubuses because these things often had wings like bat-like wings. And there we have more of the tie-in to the vampires where they were humans that can turn into bats. And again, that's a caricature. I don't think it's an actual shape shifting into uh, the mammalia of a bat. It is that, their demonic form they have these ugly black leathery wings that we would you know anthropomorphize as like that looks like a bat to us you know so um these things go all the way back into all the way back into antiquity and they like like i said earlier i won't rehash they they came in more of a literal form they, th this was the explanation in antiquity for like crib death and since if you woke up and your baby was dead, Lamashtu got it. You know, Lamashtu came to the door, and, and again, it's it's threshold stuff. Uh, people would put um, talismans on the threshold of their door, and there was another little demon called Kazuzu, and he was actually a bad guy also. But for some reason, this guy hated Lamashtu so much that if you summoned him, he would defend you against her so he was willing to spot you a favor in that case so people would nail these little statues of pazuzu on their uh, the threshold of their door or they would put it on their mantle pieces so that when you opened the door to the house you, the first thing you would see is that thing sitting up on the mantle and that was supposedly going to ward off lamashtu from coming in and attacking your pregnant wife or your nursing mother or your newborn in the crib so if if anybody is familiar with Gary Wayne and his his writing the Genesis Six Conspiracy, he's got a tome about six hundred pages long. One of the one of the best books I've ever read. It's it's worth the months it takes to read it. But he goes into the actual uh, foundations of of this, and it's it's the the blood drinking cults of Kish. It goes all the way back to the time of Cain, and I'm talking Cain and Abel Cain, and they were these blood drinking cults and um it had to do with longevity and eternal life um and the the drinking of of the 
the blood from from the grail would would grant um, immortality. You become as a god. So it it's all into modern um, uh, religiosity as well. This whole ascension doctrine, uh, where you can tap into your higher vibrational self and become a better person, and all this stuff. It it's all goes back to this becoming as a god. It's, it goes all the way back to the to the garden, and so these vampiric incubus succubus demons they've been relegated in fiction and fantasy lore as just oh this exciting thing you go to the astral and you can have astral sex and it's the best stuff you've ever had in your life and it that's really all people know about it but these things are are diabolically evil and they're not there for your pleasure they're not there even for their own pleasure that they're, they're you are an ends, you are a means to their end, basically. They they have a goal in mind. They want your energy. They want your soul. The, they want your affections. I mean, just go to the New Testament. I mean, that that's the whole thing that Paul preached until he was blue in the face. And that is that we're supposed to die to the old man and, and live anew. And uh, these incubus, succubus demons are doing everything in their power to keep that old man alive. And um, they're trying to revive that old man and tap into those desires. Uh, they don't want the new man taking over. I believe this will also be in your wheelhouse as well. On my wife's side of the family, and there's no need to name them, they have told me they have a condition known as night terrors yes. um and the way that this was brought up to me was uh something had happened in my house that night i ended up staying over there and they're like you know you can sleep in the living room hey if you hear so and so randomly screaming in the middle of the night they're okay and i just remember going why would they scream in the night and are you sure they're okay <laughs> and and so if that's something that you uh dealt with and if it even goes hand in hand with sleep paralysis could you talk about uh night terrors yeah yeah some people use the terms synonymously and that is incorrect from from a textbook perspective it's incorrect uh my brother actually had night terrors when he was probably around four or five years old and uh, some of the, like the basic differences. Now, obviously, things can fall out of, of the realms of this. There's always exceptions to every rule. Typically, night tears, it's more common in boys than girls, but it can happen to girls. And it's more common in children and prepubescent. Like it doesn't often happen to adults, but it can. The, the main difference between night tears and sleep paralysis is that Sleep paralysis is very quiet. The person is paralyzed. They can't scream. Night terrors, you're hearing them scream. They they are thrashing about in bed. They can move. They can scream. Uh, interestingly, a, I don't know if this is in the case with your family members, but a lot of times with night terrors, when they wake up the next morning, they have no recollection of it. They don't remember having a bad dream. They can't tell you anything happened. They're like, what? Shut up. Take a video of this. I don't even Whereas someone with sleep paralysis can wake up the next day and tell you every single thing that happened, every smell, every sight, every sound, everything, the color of the thing's eyes, how long it was, like they have a recall. So those are some some of the differences. Uh, but obviously they are both um, nocturnal, you know, demonic encounters, uh, you know, that that are there for, for tormenting, harassing human beings. But they, they have a little bit of a different modus operandi. 
uh, they're, they're doing different things. Back to another previous comment you made. And thank you for answering all of our questions. So amazingly. Sure. Um, we're, we're loving this. I hope you're enjoying it. We're having a great time. I'm having a great time. I, oh, good, good. I always feel like, oh, man, I like I start blabbering and I dominate. So I hope I'm not. Um, no. Blabber away. Speak away. Okay. It's not blabbering. Um, okay. How are you on time, by the way? Because I don't want to hold you. I'm good. Cool. I'm good. Going back to another previous comment you made, and I read about it in your book, They Only Come Out at Night by Vicki Joy Anderson, available at lamarzuli.net. Um, you speak on astral projection, and you've mentioned the astral multiple times. On our show, we've only had one or two astral projection stories. And we often don't take the time to break down these things because we're just having people share their encounters. And if they throw out a phrase, we aren't stopping and explaining and teaching these things. So, A, what is astral projection? And how does that tie in with sleep paralysis? Yep, absolutely. So there is a quote in my book from uh, a new ager uh, named Erin Pavlina, I believe her name is. And, you know, this is why I love chatting with the new agers. Scientists won't tell you anything. Journalists won't tell you anything. Uh, doctors won't tell you anything. If you go online and you look up sleep paralysis and astral projection, you get a whole bunch of disinformation, like there's no such thing. This is just fictional. This is in the movies. This is narcolepsy. Like nobody, nobody with a degree will tell you anything you need to know, but the new agers will flat out tell you what it is and what's going on. And so, um, Aaron Pavlina says that, uh, for those who are wanting to learn how to astral project, you know, it, it takes some skill to separate out of your body because you only have a very short little limited span of time during an altered state of consciousness as you're falling asleep or coming out of, of sleep. Now, granted, you can also do this if you, you know, use um, psychedelics and things, but if you're doing it while, while you're going to sleep, it takes some skill and it takes practice. And uh, so she said that sleep paralysis is an ideal opportune time to try astral projection. It, it is just it's an opportune time. All of the ducks are in a row. So um, astral projection is this concept that you're, this is where Christians can get, get triggered. So I'm just, I'm going to use as many synonyms as I can. Uh, I'm not advocating this. The Bible does not want us separating from our body and going into the spirit realm and interacting with spiritual beings that's divination that's sorcery it's strictly forbidden um but astral projection is when the soul or the light body or the chi or the astral body whatever you want to call it separates from your physical body and uh attached to the silver cord uh that's still anchoring you into your body you are traversing in this other dimension and so uh this is where a lot of you know disinformation comes into play that oh if your silver cord gets cut you'll die you'll get trapped in the astral realm uh, you'll die in your sleep and all this kind of stuff and it it's it's not that literal it it could even just be it could be uh, something with the with the pineal gland it could be um 
I, I have many different theories, but for, for all intents and purposes, what it is, is when you go to sleep at night and you dream, you're in some sort of dimensional space in your head where you're seeing these pictures. You're in this movie theater and you're seeing these pictures. The astral realm is just another theater. It's just another like um, screen in that movie theater. And it is, I believe, you're actually a part of you. Your physical body is not there, but some part of your spirit is actually physically in the high places of Ephesians 612. And this is another place where a lot of people get really mixed up. When Paul talked about being in the third heaven, when John saw the throne room of God on the island of Patmos, he was not in the ast. They were not this. They were not. That wasn't the astral realm. That wasn't the high places. And the reason we know that is they both saw the Lamb sitting on the throne. So we know that that was that was the the throne room of God. We know from Ephesians six twelve that the high places is a different place because that's where all of the enemies that are at war with us live. These are enemies of God. And these archons and these these rulers of darkness, etc., they're in the high places. So I personally believe that the astral realm, the astral plane, is the is the high places of of um, Ephesians six twelve. So unfortunately, there are a lot of people, even Christians, who have these astral experiences and believe they're in heaven, believe they're talking to Jesus, believe it's the Holy Spirit. Because it's light and love and it feels good and it, and it was such an, uh, you know, a, a titillating experience. And this is where I think Christians really need to learn how to test the spirits, how to do that. Uh, here's what I, I try to tell people. When you have a psychedelic experience, and I never have, I would not mess with that. But when I talk to people who have done DMT or ayahuasca, or uh, mushrooms or whatever, and they're they're doing something to intentionally bring on one of these spiritual encounters. <clears throat> they will talk about a death portal that they have to go through first, that like sleep paralysis is very terrifying and it's very scary. But once they get through that, they'll talk about light and, and love and being overwhelmed with all the answers of the universe being given to them. And, uh, reality is shattered for them and and all, all of this stuff. And because that part of it is a, you know, quite frankly, a very orgasmic experience, they just assume that all had to be good. It was from some high vibrational good spirit guide, or it was Jesus or, or whatever. But here's what I find really interesting. When we go into the scriptures, and we have real world examples of human beings encountering angels, that came from the throne room, that came from heaven, bearing glad tidings. They were terrified. They had to be touched. They had to be revived. Uh, the most frequent thing an angel says to a human being in the Bible is fear not. So there's terror there, but they're talking to someone sent by God who is there on a good mission. And another thing that I think is really fascinating is we know that Peter, James, and John knew Jesus in his human form. They loved him. They trusted him. They felt safe with him. They ate meals with him. 
They laughed with him. They were friends with him. John felt so comfortable with him. He leaned up against his breast during the, the, um, the last supper. So these are men who loved Jesus. But we have two examples in scripture where these men saw Jesus in his glorified state. They saw him in his non-human form in a spirit realm. Peter was so discombobulated that he started babbling like a madman. And the, the, the Bible even tells us flat out that the reason he was talking about building tents for everybody is because they were terrified. So here's Jesus in a glorified light love state. And they were terrified. John, years and years after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, he got to see Jesus again. I mean, we don't think about that often. I mean, when we lose somebody, we don't see him again. Like John actually got to see Jesus again. He's on the island of Patmos and he sees the lion on the throne with the, with the brazen bronze and the hair white as snow and the gleaming robe. This was the disciple Jesus loved. This is the disciple he entrusted to take care of his own mother. There was a love relationship there. There was trust and safety there. John fell as a dead man. And the lamb had to say, don't be afraid. This was his friend. What was he scared of? And I think this is what where a lot of people, Christians and New Agers, miss the boat. When we as human beings encounter spiritual beings. If we encounter someone disguised as an angel of light, it'll be impressive to us. It'll be beautiful to us. We'll be mesmerized by it. We we will be in awe of it. But if that angelic spiritual being that we are in contact with is the living, resurrected Messiah, Jesus Christ, our only response as human beings standing in the presence of pure holiness will be terror. So if you're in some sort of spiritual dimension and you're feeling love and light and every single bit of dopamine is spurting out of your head and you've never felt this way before in your life and it was the greatest thing in the world, I don't know how that could be Jesus. Sinful human beings do not get in the presence of holiness and feel jubilance. They say, I am a man. Whoa, is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. They start talking about building tents because they're scared to death. They fall as dead men. So one of the ways to test the spirits, if you're having these encounters at night and the Holy Spirit is taking you up into the sky and you're flying around and you, you wake up just euphoric and, um, these are some of the ways you've got to test the spirit because there is no way for human beings to be cavalier in the presence of holiness. And now we know from scripture that they can touch our lips with a piece of coal. They can touch us. They can revive us. They, you know, all of these men that encountered the lamb of God or encountered Jesus or encountered an angel, they were given the strength but not until they first lost it. And even Daniel, and this is another way to test the spirits. And I say this all the time. I've talked to a lot of people in my life who, you know, oh, I had a dream last night and Jesus came up to me and he said this. And then, you know, and they're talking just so cavalier about it. 
And the second they wake up, they know exactly what the dream means and how to interpret it and what to do next. And they're online, you know, doing a TikTok video. Um, Peter, when he had the vision of the sheet, Daniel, when he had his visions, these men were perplexed. They had no idea what these visions meant. Daniel was sick for weeks after having these visions. He was physically ill. And so if we use the Bible as a litmus for how did men and women who came into contact with God, Jesus, or his angels react physically, mentally, spiritually, and emotionally, and how does that contrast with how I'm feeling? Uh, that's going to be a good starting point for determining whether or not that dream or that vision or that experience you had was a second or a third heaven experience. And I do believe that people can still have third heaven experiences. Jesus can do whatever he wants. He can show himself to whoever he wants. I don't think that he has closed the doors of heaven and, and people don't have those experiences. In fact, scripture even says that as the time goes short in the end times, men will dream dreams. Like we will dream dreams. They'll be of God. So I'm not ruling that out. But if you wake up from these experiences and you're just talking about it like like it was the last Marvel comic movie you saw and you're all excited about it. And then, and then he said this and that. I I personally, as, as a sinner, if I came face to face with Jesus Christ in my dream tonight, I, I trust that he loves me and that he saved me and I know my salvation is secure, but I would fall over. I'd probably wet my pants. I mean, because I'm not holy and I've never been in the presence of holiness. I live in a fallen world where everything around me is corrupted. We have no idea what it would feel like if we were all of a sudden in the presence of sheer holiness. We would not be able to process that with our little pea brains. So this cavalier attitude that people have about just jaunting up to the astral realm anytime they want and asking their spirit guides questions and shaking their little eight ball to figure out who they should date next and who they should marry. This is silliness at best, and it is opening doors at worst. So a pattern Corey and I have seen and we shared with you is that, and as obviously you've seen in writing this book, sleep paralysis, this is happening a lot. It's happening to all kinds of people at different ages and all stages of life. And to someone right now who's listening to this, who's going through that, who's, you know, a believer or in some cases not a believer, but the one that always blows my mind is that it is a believer more often than not we've found. What would you say to encourage them? Because this is something you went through quite a bit and you've heard quite a bit and studied quite a bit about. Yeah. Yeah. This is a great question. You know, chapter six in the book, the entire chapter is all about who are their targets? Why are these the targets? How do I get out of this? How do I undo this? And there's prayer mapping exercises and there's all sorts of information. But uh, by way of encouragement, if you're a Christian and take this to heart, don't, don't just run with this. You, you, you got to pray over this because everybody wants to be the one Job in the sea of Peter's, right? We all want to be the one that's suffering for our righteousness and not because we betrayed Jesus, right? So be very sober minded and humble and vigilant as you ask these questions. But I, I alluded earlier that there's people that have done all the due diligence. They've thrown everything away. 
They've prayed all of the deliverance prayers. Uh, they've confessed sins. They've routed things out of their life. And this is still, it will not go away. So what I would suggest and what I hope will be encouraging is if we are toward the end of days and whether it's 10 years off, 100 years off or 10 days off, Today, we're one day closer than we were yesterday. We're, we're moving forward on the, on this timeline here. Every day, we're one day closer. And the church, in my estimation, if 2020 was any giveaway about how prepared the church is for tyranny and chaos, <laughs> we're not ready for it. So that means that God has to train up an army of men and women who are equipped for spiritual warfare like we have never seen before on planet Earth. Because if there's going to be war in heaven and angry red dragons are going to be thrown to the earth with wrath and and Apollyon is going to be let out of the abyss and and all of this stuff. I mean, we're talking about spiritual warfare that the church is not equipped to fight right now. So that means that God has to build an army. And one of the ways that he puts us through basic training or he puts us through boot camp is he has to expose us to the darkness enough times so that we can start seeing patterns. We can start seeing uh, things that work and things that don't work. We can start to learn how to control our fear. We can learn how to call in the name of God. We, we, we can learn how to use the various pieces of our armor. You know, I, I can look at my, you know, 47 years of sleep paralysis through two different lenses. I can look at it like, that's not fair. You come and, and attack and harass and taunt a little kid and try to ruin her life. How, that That's terrible. Where, where was God in that? Why wasn't God protecting me? Or you can look at it like, if God is raising up soldiers... I had 47 years of on-the-job training. I had boot camp for 47 years where I got to face these things. And yeah, there were years where I was scared. And all I could do was, Jesus, Jesus, help me, Jesus, help me, Jesus, wake me up, Jesus, wake Jesus, Jesus. And that's what I call a transference of using the name of Jesus as an offensive weapon instead of a defensive weapon. And by offensive, I don't mean, you know, you've offended me. What I mean is, you can wield the name of Jesus like a sword. Jesus, help me. Jesus, help me. Jesus, help me. That's defensive. Get away from me. Get away from me. But as soon as you learn, like King David, to grab those stones and run at that Philistine, how dare you besmirch the name of the living God? Who do you think you are? When we learn to take that sword and run at the enemy and say, in the name of Jesus, get out. You have no authority here. You have just learned. You've went from the proverbial bear and lion to the, to the Goliath of Gath there, right? You know, when, when, when you're a kid, you got the little slingshot and, and you've got the little bear and you're protecting a little sheep. But once you've progressed through boot camp, now, now it's a giant and, and it's, it's the whole nation. Uh, and your God that you are, are rescuing, not just a dirty sheep, right? So when when the weapon goes from a defensive weapon to an offensive weapon, you're trained. 
you're ready. You're ready for the bigger battle. And so what I would say to encourage people who are genuine believers, we're all sinful. We're all works in progress. We all still have healing and things that we need. You know, it, I'm not saying we've, we've, we've arrived, but you know, you're a believer. You know, you're walking with him. You fear him. You love him. You hate your sin. Uh, you, you're measuring who you are in Christ by the promises in scripture and by intimacy with the savior and a longing to see his face. You're not measuring whether or not you're a Christian because you go to church and you went on a mission trip and you tithe and you only listen to Caleb, like all this silly stuff that doesn't matter. (laughs) You know you're a believer and you've tried everything and this stuff is relentless and it will not stop. And the enemy wants you to be convinced that you're a coward or that you're a hypocrite and that's why you can't vanquish him. It might just be that you're being trained to be a front line warrior for a coming battle so press on toward the prize and don't give up and don't be discouraged i love that you just literally took a topic that most people look at almost from the point of view not to sound judgy but almost a victim mindset because and you just flipped it from victim to warrior essentially like no 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 i'm i'm training i'm beefing up i am i'm about to be on the front lines for the king I love that. I love that so much. That's right. We got too many soldiers in the triage tent right now, balled up in the fetal position, licking their wounds because life dealt them a blow. Life disappointed you. You lost the job. You lost the girl, whatever it is. And you know what? God's merciful. He saves all our tears in a bottle. And every blow that he blows upon us is for some reason. He's got a rod and a staff. But there's a point where you got to get up out of the triage tent. You got to stop sucking down the pain meds and you got to get yourself back out onto that battlefield. Amen. 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 Well, thank you so much again for joining us here tonight. Uh, Do you mind? Can you share with us what your next project looks like? Yeah, I think so. I just started it and I'm, I'm just working on it. I am, I'll give you a a little taste. I'm going to be delving into AI, but it's not going to be the cliche stuff. With the sleep paralysis book, as well as this one, if someone else has already written it, I'm not going to write it. I'm not going to just plagiarize and copy and paste other people's research. I I have uh, a direction in my mind of where I think this is going and where I think it's going after that and where I think it's going after that. And so... I am delving into that and uh, I am, I'm hoping to, to bang that out and have a first draft done by the end of the year, Lord willing. Well, we'll be praying for that. Thank you. Thank you. I need it. Grace, grace, grace. And where can folks find you and start following you? Absolutely. You can find me at VickiJoyAnderson.com. That's Vicky with an I, Anderson, S-O-N. I'm on Instagram, VickiJoyAuthor. And the book, as you mentioned, is available exclusively on lamarzuli.net. You will not find it anywhere else at this point. So uh, that's where you can find me. And I'd love to love to chat with anybody. I've got a contact page on my website. If anyone's going through this and they want to talk or they just want to share their story or they want a phone call, uh, uh, just get a hold of me on my website on the contact page. 
Thank you so much. This this was a joy, a pleasure, and I hope you'll let us get you back on another time. Absolutely. Thanks, guys, so much for having me on. It was great. Well, you know, we first got the idea of interviewing Vicki Joy Anderson when L.A. Marzuli mentioned her to us, and he told us she's a great interviewee. And L.A. is apparently a magnificent judge of interviewees because she just knocked that out of the park. Although I have to say, maybe I'm a little offended on behalf of all the K-Love lovers out there. Nah, nah. I'm with Vicky on this one. (laughs) I miss the local stations. (laughs) (laughs) So if you are one of those believers who's suffering from sleep paralysis and you don't know what to do with it, you're using the name of Jesus and it just isn't breaking. We know to just resist the enemy and eventually he has to flee with us. Of course, I'd recommend going and getting her book. She has more tips and tricks and advice for you. Uh, Of course, that book, again, is They Only Come Out at Night by Vicki Joy Anderson, available exclusively at lamarzuli.net. Now, in getting on with a fantastic tradition we have here at LITD, we're going to do a little something we like to call a shout-out. Shout-out! And today's shout-out comes from Chach, titled One of a Kind Show with One of a Kind Hosts five stars and they said Corey and Daniel are a great duo they have a good flow with each other as well as with their guests they ask the questions I'm thinking and they keep it from getting weird always able to pull Jesus into the mix and relate things back to God's perspective I live in Utah interesting and we don't have a plethora of solid Christian churches and I haven't been familiarized with deliverance ministries charismatic churches being slain in the spirit or baptized by fire or the Holy Spirit I've only scratched the surface on those things. I've been standoffish to exploring those parts of my faith further because I've seen some weird and what I believe was pseudo-spiritual things happen. I want to explore things of the supernatural as well as the paranormal, but through a biblical lens with the Holy Spirit as my teacher. Corey and Daniel create that setup so things can happen in a funny and interesting and entertaining way. Exclamation point. And we do love exclamation points. Thanks, guys. Exclamation point. And we really love exclamation points. So we thank you again for the five stars, Chach, and the two exclamation points. Unless I missed one somewhere in there. I don't think we did. All right, fair enough. Two's good. You know, whatever. Two is fantastic. That's more than some people get on Yelp. That's fair. That's fair, Mr. Silver Linings. Now, if you want to get to know me and Corey a little better, more about the heart behind the show, you can go to litdpod.com. L-I-T-D-Pod.com. L-I-T-D-Pod.com. And you can find out more about us. Now, if you would like to partner with us in prayer or tell us one of your supernatural or paranormal testimonies or stories, you can send all that to litdpod at gmail.com. litdpod at gmail.com. litdpod at gmail.com.
Podcast.com. And coming to you very soon is actually our first interview with a listener that just shot us an email to litdpod at gmail.com and we interviewed her. litdpod at gmail.com. litdpod at gmail.com. Felt right. Go ahead, bud. <laughs> but please reach out to us. Anything that's on your mind. If you want advice, if you want to give us stock tips, whatever is going on, we'd love to hear from you. Especially on the stock tips. Now, Corey, if they wanted to reach us, where would they send that email to? We've done it enough on this episode. If they don't know by now that it's litdpod at gmail.com, there's a problem. Did you say litdpod at gmail.com? I don't know. Let me rewind it. Litdpod at gmail.com. There's a problem. I don't know if I should say it again that before. <laughs> well, thank you so much, dear listener, for l- tuning in. And until next time, take care, y'all. This LITD after credit musical break is dedicated to Cameron and Sean. <laughs>